Hi, it's uh, June 25th, 2021. This is the first half of a conversation between Rob, aka Minion, on Twitter. And uh, he will be sharing the second half on his own podcast. So, as you know, I'm Daniel, uh, aka Primeval Fantasy, on Twitter. And I am Rob, also known as Minion, or the other way around. Yeah. Yeah. And so uh, Rob and I uh, talked a couple of weeks ago and we decided to go ahead and make a, um, a, a role playing uh, podcast episode where we're just kind of bouncing off of each other informally. And um, we're just going to pick up uh, some of those threads and see how it goes. Rob, go ahead and tell me about what your primary um type of um, gaming appetite would be? What do you think about the most as far as um, styles of play and what do you enjoy the most? Oh, wow. Uh, that's a huge <laughs> question. Um, yeah. Isn't it? Uh, yeah. Uh, well, I mean, what I, mo- what I mo- mostly play and what I'm drawn to the most, I guess, um, would help as a starting point. I, I tend to prefer early editions of Dungeons and Dragons. And that might be because that's what I, I started off with. Um, and there's a, you know, d and is a weird game, um, of a strange pastiche of, of different elements from, I guess, American culture, Americana, um, and also, you know, world uh, mythology and scraps of this. And, uh, and then, you know, uh, spices from that uh, and it's just this weird creature that uh, I, I enjoy quite a lot um, and it, the, the mixture of all those different elements gives it a certain flavor that is quite something else it's not quite pulp <laughs> the mm-hmm. pulp fictions that it's uh, based upon or the movies the monster movies and, and so on that it, that it drew, drew, drew from rather it's like a, a strange yeah, mixture of all of these elements and obviously it's changed a great deal um, through the years through the decades uh, as it comes down through the different uh, the different editions but I, I, I'm, mo- I'm most drawn to I guess you know that uh, basic and expert um, maybe first edition Advanced Dungeons and Dragons era, um, mm-hmm. particularly the e- early era, which I actually missed. So I I started in 1985, right? Um, but it's the 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 modules were written. I was playing were probably written in the early era, so era. So between I guess 79 and 83 for the most part, and mm-hmm. it, it's those ones which are so simple, but hold probably you know the most important part, place in my heart. Um, and why that is, I, yeah, I guess that's the question. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we do get it. We did, you know, we were kids. I was 11 when I started and, um, I got it, you know, imprinted on by basic D and D and those old modules are precious. Uh, so yeah. Yeah. I think uh, what, what I like about them the most coming back to them, probably I didn't like, I didn't appreciate them as much at the time, but the, hmm. I guess we may have touched on this before um, when we weren't recording, you know, last time we spoke. But we have, um, um, you know, the modules in D&D, they became much more complicated and plot-driven uh, through the ages, through the as the editions went on. So as you get into the end of first edition, um, 
particular early second edition after that. I'm not so familiar, but they became much more plot driven and much more about um, storytelling. But the early era, you know, they are so simple. Um, You have these uh, scenarios, these uh, not so much scenarios, but areas of land or areas of space that are plotted out. So you have the, you know, you usually have a map or something. Um, you don't necessarily have a time frame where things have to be done. You don't necessarily have a certain sort of um, progression of events that, that happen in a certain order uh, and you have to be here by this time or if you arrive here, this event triggers. You don't have that part. Um, that's something that seems to have come with, uh, you know, DL1, um, the first Dragonlance module. Um, but before that, you instead you have these like uh, just a place or some, some interesting uh, geography to explore and it's that exploration uh, in D&D and also in Middle Earth role-playing um, to a slightly different extent uh, in a different, slightly different way that, that I find really interesting because um, you can fill in the gaps you, you and the, you as a GM um, and also the players are able to create a story from the land from the, from the elements that are given to you and and reading I guess or writing the story as you go on from there, uh, filling in the parts that are of interest to those particular players. Is that the style you play in now where there is a, a timeline and there is a story it, where, as opposed to just, you know, a world, excuse me, as opposed to just here's a scenario you're thrown into um, and go, is that the way you play where there's actually time passing? Oh, no. No, no, quite the opposite. No, quite the opposite. Okay. I, I, um, oh, time does pass. Yeah, time does pass. But I, I don't, I, I don't really like like these. Event, I don't like having the boss that you have to defeat or a MacGuffin that you have to put here to to complete the adventure. Mm-hmm. I, I like. Um, I think I do prefer like these open. Uh, I wouldn't call them fun houses because I think that sort of um, makes play sort of. Uh, makes light of what they are capable of doing but i like these these spaces um modular spaces a dungeon or a, or a, an area to explore mm-hmm. and just letting people go in them and then you know using maybe rumors or or other hooks to have people get involved even if it's just there's money there and and you're poor and <laughs> right I, I, I don't think it necessarily has to be that complicated um, other systems that we do play you know i, I play other systems uh, such as uh, warhammer fancy role play there's a much more stronger um uh role for plot in most of the adventures that i have been uh, running and the events timeline is very rigid whether you engage in the events or not is another question, but that's a different kind of place. But but I do like the sense of an open world to explore. Um, yeah, no, that, that, that's something that I think people often downplay the early sort of D&D as if it's something that's not very, they use the word evolved. But I, I think, you know, preparing a book with a, a space that you're going to explore, or in the case of Middle-earth role-playing, um, You've got an area of that may include some ruins or, or uh, marshes or woodland, and it will have the, the fauna and the flora described. And there's so much detail in there. Mm-hmm. And there might be just a couple of pages of actual adventure 
scenarios at the back. So the main part would be, would have, in, with Middle Earth Roleplay, would be actually just describing the area, the space that you can explore. And there's so many different ideas in there that you just want, want to explore the space and interact in this virtual world. And I think that's something that the early D&D actually can do really well. Yeah. Um, so if we think about the different editions, so one question that comes to mind is why would let's say basic, like what would its strengths be with regards to the, this paradigm of exploration? Like how does, how does the one facilitate the other? Is it because it's so rules light by comparison? Yeah, I guess it's, it's probably a combination of things. Um, and I, mm, I, I guess you can take BX and insert a lot of these features into any edition, which is kind of curious. So, so what BX for people who are not familiar with uh, basic expert BX D and D, which you know started around 1981, roughly. People who are not familiar with that, um, it, it has uh, procedures, not just for combat, there's a, a sequence of events that happen in a combat, but there's also a sequence for running dungeon exploration or wilderness exploration. Okay, it sounds very artificial, but these, um, this kind of uh, existence of procedures is, is really um, useful because it it's fast. Once you get used to the procedures, it's very fast. Uh, and because it's a sequence of events or a sequence of play, you can actually overlay that onto other editions where the, the procedures may not be so clear. So, you know, dungeon exploration, it has a certain um, scale of time and space that it's operating within. Also, combat. So if you're using combat, the combat round probably in BX, if I remember correctly, is 10 seconds, you know, um, uh, and everything is moving at a different speed and at a different pace because you want to keep that the excitement of, of, of action running. But in a dungeon exploration, you're moving in 10, 10 minute sequences. Mm-hmm. And this actually, the, although you're probably moving a little bit faster, the actual speed is based in 10 minutes. So you're actually moving around in a, at a snail's pace through the dungeon as you map and as you negotiate the unfamiliar territory, um, you're rolling every 10 minutes for certain events that could trigger just by your being in this uh, otherworldly uh, under <laughs> underground uh, environment. Uh, and so, yeah, I mean, uh, it, it's just um, very simple and very artificial at first, but a very simple um, way of running through play Mm-hmm. But as you become very familiar with it, 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 it becomes very, very fluid and intuitive and it starts to disappear into the background. Right. So um, as the additions um, went on, I mean, advanced D&D had a, a lot of complexity added to it. And then with every edition, uh, it seems that there's more and more uh, options, more uh, complexity added. Do you think that 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 adding that complexity? Um, how, how do you think that affects gameplay or or style of play? Like, um, see, as I remember, basic. Uh, it was very, very um, short list of character options and oh, yeah. short <clears throat> list of of all options by comparison. Right. So. Um, 
I mean, I, my, my guess is that it's the more options you have, um, does that necessarily affect your gaming style? Does that, what does that do in your opinion? Oh my goodness. Um, <laughs> I'm not, yeah, I'm not going to try and trigger, uh, an addition war or anything like that. Oh no, so no. I'll, I, I'll, so I'll, I'll yeah. tread carefully, but, uh, <laughs> I think, I, I think, of course, you know, you've got fifth edition, which actually takes a step back in some ways and it become, comes closer to not even first edition, maybe closer to basic and expert in some ways in, in its simplicity in some respects. Mm-hmm. Um, third edition, I guess, is much more complicated. Fourth edition, I don't really know much about, but I hear it yeah, had many um, complex elements. Um, I don't know what people like. Um, I think a lot of people do love lots of options. Mm-hmm. Um, they love to, the play, players like to be engaged and they feel that building a character, um, being able to build a fighter, for example, that's obvious, that can use this intelligence to overcome, to, to win battles rather than brawn or dexterity, for example. I, th- I guess that's something you can do in Pathfinder mm-hmm. or third edition. Maybe the, I think there's certain feats that require intelligence or dexterity, for example. Um, mm-hmm. And that's not going to be the case in basic mm-hmm. expert d because you're just stripping it down. Um, and you're not, not only are you reducing the number of classes, so you've got four classes, fighter, thief, magic user, but you're also reducing a, um, races to classes. So uh so fight thief and magic user magic user cleric are human classes and the, the poor old demi-humans are reduced to being a class of their own mm-hmm. so you, an elf is an elf a dwarf is a dwarf and a halfling is a halfling and i think a lot of people um even back in the day i think found that very restrictive um and you know they have very good reasons for feeling that way um but uh, <laughs> it, to the reason why I've kind of come back to I've come back to that um, appreciating that way of doing things is because um, it gives these these classes a, a flavor of their own uh, and these um, let's call them I don't know species races whatever you like to call, refer to them as demi humans it makes them very different. So the elf is technically a fighter, magic user, but because it's it, it's a class of its own, all of its abilities are balanced within that class. So it's not like choosing a in first edition D anD D choosing a thief, elven thief, where you're not only you're getting the benefits of being a an elf, you can get to any level as a thief. So the question is, why would you ever be a human thief, except right. as Right, you know, you're shooting yourself in the foot because you're not getting infravision, which is really beneficial to a thief. Uh, um, you can overcome these some of these strange, um, problematic um, choices of balancing the humans and, and non-humans at later edition. Instead, mm-hmm. the dwarf is a dwarf, and they are quite capable fighters. Um, have 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 certain skills and. Um, aptitudes if you like from having grown up in a mountainous or hilly underground environment mm-hmm. and halflings as well so they have a real strong flavor and i guess you know they've talked about this as 
as the classes representing archetypes. Mm -hmm. uh, and you get people who say, well, just recently actually I heard somebody saying, well, I, I hate the idea of being locked in a class. Um, and um, because you can change career right today. Well, you may be able to change career, but you can't necessarily change your class so easy mm -hmm. <laughs> in even in the real world. <laughs> right. Yeah. You know, there are glass ceilings in our society. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but but more so in the medieval world, I guess, is, uh, yeah, I mean, class and caste would have been very real, uncomfortable truths. So being able to switch from the priestly class wouldn't, you know, it's not like a career option. I mean, right. This is something you've probably been brought up within. Right. Uh, and maybe people feel, for various reasons, uncomfortable with that. Uh, part of that is setting, I guess. I mean, yeah, who would want to live in a medieval society? Well, some of us might might do. But, um, it, it certainly is a different world, and a different world from the one which we often try to anachronistically sort of rewrite over it. Because, you know, we want to live in a fancy world. We don't want to live in a real gritty, nasty, well, or do we? <laughs> I play yeah. Warhammer. But, but, you know, I think a lot of players, yeah, they, they don't want to have the problems of real world. They, yeah, ugliness. Um, uh, certainly not historical uglinesses. Uh, and it is a problem. Yeah. Yeah, I, I wouldn't want to live... Uh, I mean, go, go back to any era, uh, it, there's some hideousness somewhere, right? Um, yeah. For me, what I would want can't really be found except in tiny little imperceptible pockets. Um, so I had a, a, a history professor years ago who talked about um, these little pockets of joy um, for example, in Britain, and they would have been uh, small periods like in the 7th through the 9th century, if you were isolated enough to be free from all the big cities, it's possible that people could have lived 20 or 30 or 40 years without anyone coming in and saying, I'm your Lord, I'm your King. And they, they could have been free to live for a while just as a village interacting with other villages. But, uh, I mean, that's the picture of something I would want, like absolute um, freedom from kings and nobles and hierarchies of any kind. But yeah. you, you, can't, you just can't point to a period in time when that lasts. Even if you went back 5,000 years, you have Sumerians doing it to the world, and then you have the ancient Romans doing it to the world. And so, uh, you're, yeah, you're, we can't point to a century and say, that's a good century, because it just doesn't exist. Yeah, I, I'm just looking up, um, uh, I'm thinking of um, a writer, um, a historian called E.P. Thompson. Mm -hmm. um, he he's a uh, he, well, he's a historian uh, and a writer. Uh, he, yeah, he was a, a socialist, and he wrote a, quite a, an important book, seminal book, called "The Making of the English Working Class." He wrote this back in like 1963. <laughs> I haven't done my research, but that's the power of Wikipedia. I just put it up on my phone. <laughs> right. But I, I read this a few years ago, um, and it's a, just a huge tome. 
Um, and it, it's a fascinating. It's particularly yeah, it's the making of the English working class. So it's looking at this period at the end of the 1700s, uh, running on into maybe the end of the 1800s, uh, and the industrialization, the power of in, what industrialization did to the the demographic, you know, uh, the population of, of England in in particular, and how class consciousness came about but he what he he talks about uh, what i wanted to mention is is that he discusses this period just between that um period of like well, the agricultural revolution the industrial revolution between that that point there and after the uh, the plagues um after the plague and, and so where the population uh, at the end of the middle ages i guess uh dropped suddenly so you had this you had um a much lower population and the work that they the people were doing in the ag- agricultural communities so that many people would have their own little plot of land they would have maybe a loom a spinning wheel um, and they have these little cottage cottage industries and, and the people would be working maybe just uh three four days a week mm-hmm. Uh, and they were beholden to none. So they, they obviously, they lived in, um, if you're talking about people in the, the end of the 1700s or the um, mid-1700s, you know, that we still have, we, we have a parliament, we have a kind of democracy, but it's not, but not everybody has the vote unless they own land. Only the male landowners would, would have the right to vote. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, you've got these people who have quite a large amount of of spiritual and kind of um, material freedom and they, the one of the big arguments for land reform was to get people working more mm. uh, and to get them because they're, they're hanging out in the pub and smoking pipes and you know it's it's real kind of like hobbiton stuff yeah yeah good uh, shire life yeah yeah uh, and that that was you know in order to to have this revolution, this um, liberal dem- democracy and the industrial revolution, and have these things working, get Britain um, uh, optimize the industry and have Britain leading in the world. Mm-hmm. They they didn't focus on education so much, but they got just moved people off land. They changed the, the way that people and the land interacted and it resulted in a huge influx of well, dispossessed workers moving into the cities mm-hmm. um being snapped up as a as a workforce to in these new factories and and the whole new dynamic um you know a real real um revolution in in, in a lot of ways a uh, change to people's lives and i guess yeah that feeds back into talking uh, um, what Tolkien was looking at, obviously he wasn't around in those times, but he, his his ideal of the of this Shire that has to be protected, this little England that doesn't didn't even exist probably when he was writing, but little fragments of it, maybe little little islands of it, still could be seen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, yeah. So we we. We'd live with these. So we've escaped. From, sorry, I, I've I've gone away from the topic a little bit. But yeah, we 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 uh, have, have a danger of idealizing the past. And- oh yeah, yeah. I, I 
I think I, I learned quite a long time ago that what I want is to not recreate the past at all. I want to create a fantasy setting that has some of the trappings uh, of it's just like snapshots. Like when I think about seventh century Britain in the middle of nowhere, we have virtually nothing written about what happens in the middle of nowhere. We have everything written about whoever is attacking whom and, and whatever, you know, uh, you know, when the Normans invade, we're all about the battles and the forts that get built. But, um, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, I really care about what's happening in in that little village cluster, uh, five hundred miles away somewhere, right? So, well, I know you're interested in uh, in Beleriand, so Tolkien created a, a land um, within Middle Earth mm-hmm. that was lost later in later ages, but in the first age, the the center of that he focuses on his center of action is this this land of Beleriand. Mm-hmm. So, what what draws you to that? I mean, I know I, I love the Silmarillion. Yeah, setting, but. yeah, Silmarillion is is my favorite um, novel, and what draws me in um, is this world that is totally untamed, um, and it's it's always uh, under the threat of Morgoth, but. Um, you have these pockets uh, because of people like uh, Melian and Thingol, who uh, they create uh, a barrier where the sacred is preserved against the profanity of Morgoth. And so you have all of this beauty on one side of the fence and all of this horror on the other side. And that just makes for um, a beautiful... Um, setting and it makes for a great role-playing background too because um, I that's what I want whenever I game is the feeling of uh, real danger and horror um, and that's that's all part of the battle I don't like the kind of casual um, questing of let's go get the treasure um, that that's not what I enjoy myself, and so uh, I enjoy reaching to the mythical past, and and being involved in you know mythical conflict. Uh, that that just really appeals to me. So in in um, Tolkien's world, you have these so-called uh, races, but in, in many ways you've got the elves and the dwarves, although they're the first and well, first second children. So-called, you know, of the of Iluvatar, the the mm-hmm. creator of that world, who's separate, very much separate from Middle Earth. There's mm-hmm. no priesthood in Middle Earth, but right. um, so you've got these the first children, the second children, and the third children are humans who just spring up from nowhere. They sort of walk into this mm-hmm. um, situation that you've talked about. So the the the, the humans and the dwarves and elves are kind of like these spirits. They're very much attached to the land, but they can be, they later are drawn away from it and land is left to to humanity. But what, what, where do humans stand in Tolkien's Beleriand? So they, you know, they, they walk into this place from a, a yeah. dark past. We don't really know what that darkness is, but that's driven them into the West. Mm-hmm. Um, and they find themselves caught between two powers, Morgoth in the north, 
with his with his orcs, which are actually, as we know, the spirits. Uh, they're elves, mm-hmm. so they're these twist the spirits originally created for beauty and good that have been twisted into an evil force. Mm-hmm. And the Balrogs, of course. Um, and these the elves on the other side are these strange otherworldly creatures. And are they good? Well, no, this is not a simple matter of good and evil, is even, is it? I mean, they are very much driven by their passions. Right. Um, very strange creatures. Mm-hmm. Where do humans stand? Yeah, as I think about role playing, if if I think about role playing in Beleriand or in a land like Beleriand, um, I, I personally don't like um, if you're using that setting for players to play um, elves because they're so different. They're so um, spiritually different and. In a lot of the cases, uh, they're so much more powerful than we are um, in in every way. I mean, imagine just living, you know, fifteen or twenty five centuries in the forest. Who would what what human could ever compete with your woodland skills, for example? Um, and so, um, I, I think of of humans as being like like we are, like we're lost. And we're torn between, you know, that that powerful goodness, let's say, of Melian, who's a Maya, and all the beauty of, you know, the Sindar and the Noldor, that we are kind of lost and naive and we, we catch glimpses of that, but we don't, you know, we don't possess the same thing they have. Like the wisdom of the elves is something so far above us. I think that makes for great um, novels and for great role playing. Well, this this idea of wisdom um, being connected to good, because I mean I've said that the the elves aren't necessarily that good, um, mm-hmm. but but there are certain voices amongst the elves um, led by the Maya mm-hmm. um, um, or the Valar. Uh, and which are like, I guess they're like angels. Or, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, are almost like gods, really lesser gods or something like that. But they mm-hmm. they have a better idea of the bigger picture. Right. But they're not all powerful either. But then, so you've got Melian who has settled with an elf in this setting, and, and there's a sort of fountain of wisdom and goodness coming from her. But what is the wisdom and goodness, do you think? <laughs> so I, I've discussed this yeah. recently, and I talked to, um, I don't know if you know um, Breakfast in the Ruins, we, we discussed, we usually, we usually talk, he usually talks about uh, Morcock, but I managed to sort of uh, move things on to talking about Tolkien as well. <laughs> that's funny, because <laughs> Morcock hated Tolkien. Yeah. <clears throat> well, but that's the common, yeah, that's the common I hate. Yeah perception yeah. anyway but yeah, yeah so so yeah um and my, my belief my feeling is that um free freedom is the power um to be able to choose your well the human humanity people have the, this kind of freedom that's that's the main force for good the ability to choose mm-hmm. and then in order to choose correctly i guess you have to have this sort of foresight or wisdom um that nearly everybody relax in Tolkien's characters. They're imperfect characters. Right. I think um, they're not, it's not about good and evil. If anything, it's about having the possibility for good versus um, having any possibility 
to choose being crushed. Mm-hmm. So having freedom being crushed is the ultimate evil. Having no longer your own sort of will, uh, ability to choose your path. And that's, to me, that's what the ring does to people. The rings, it's about enslavement. And Morgoth, even the orcs are creatures enslaved. Um, um, so Melian, yes, she, she's this fount of wisdom. What what drives the characters then in in your kind of Balerian like world? If there's no, if if good and evil are forces that aren't necessarily um, clear cut to to our humans that wander into this strange ancient battleground, mm-hmm. how do they choose? their path <laughs> yeah so um well for the elves uh, i think it's not just uh some coincidental like trappings that the elves uh are in tune with nature uh i think that's all part of it and this is all part of tolkien's love of um nature and much more you know free primitive settings um, that, you know, to live, you know, united with the land to go, uh, cut your own harvest or, um, to, to live in the country. Uh, I mean, he, he romanticized all of that. Um, so, I mean, that, that's part of it. Um, and like you pointed out, some of the elves are, I mean, the sons of Fanor are largely evil, but it's different. It's not, it's not the, pure, you know, malice, uh, insane malice of Morgoth. It's, they're 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 proud and they're arrogant and they're filled with like this blind wrath that it it doesn't fade. Like the oath uh, of the son of Feanor and his sons, it does not fade. Uh, Something metaphysical happened when they made that oath and it drove you know, so much evil through, through the world. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, for players, um, my, my preference is that they're um, just humans uh, because it's, I mean, in that, in that context, humans are way on the low end of the power and skill scale. Um, and they're, you know, doing their best to stay alive um, and, um, yeah, I mean, that's a lot of it is, is survival and the quest to do the things that will enable the survival of, let's say their village or their loved ones. Um, and then, you know, they can be entangled with the greater quests, the greater wars, um, and I mean, that can be, that can be interesting as well. Um, I, I tend to um eschew players becoming too powerful across the board like i don't want i don't want godling characters or anything that resembles the pcs being godlings and so that's that's another reason um that generally the elves uh, are too powerful it's not always the case and you'll have men who can compete with um, and and sometimes like overcome an elf, but it's it's very much the exception to the rule. 
So that was part one of our conversation uh, this evening. If you'd like to uh, pick up where we left off, um, you can go to Minion's uh, Twitter page or just go to Anchor FM slash Minion. It's M-E-N-I-O-N. I'll put that link in the show notes. I think we'll keep doing these. I think it's a lot more interesting to um, hear people do a back and forth with ideas rather than have one person uh, reading essays or just giving monologues. So uh, jump over to his um, Anchor podcast site and you can listen to the rest of it. Thanks. Thanks.